Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you so much for joining a new episode of the Arc for Your Innovation podcast. We have a great episode for you today with the co-founders of Titan, a consumer fintech app that's democratizing investing. Um, so I think we're very aligned with, with the mission that we have here at Arc as well. We have Joe Prococo and, and Clay Gardner on the call who, found, who co-founded Titan. And we're going to jump into all kinds of topics from building the company to democratizing, investing, including democratizing the private markets, which is going to be a fascinating discussion. So we're very happy to have you um, from the ARC side. It is Will Summerlin, AI analyst um, at ARC um, and um, kind of co-lead on, on, on the venture capital side as well as myself. I've actually been working at ARC for four years covering fintech, so this is going to be a super fascinating discussion for, for me as well. And yeah, we're, we're super happy that you're here. And with that, we'll jump into the podcast. And maybe we can start with just some, some introductions. Um, Clay and Joe would love to hear a little bit uh, more about yourself. We can kind of jump into the, to, to the founding story, maybe, um, if you want to kind of give, give a quick rundown of what Titan is and how you guys founded it over the past couple of years. Yeah, Clay and I, fun fact, we met, on, we met on the first day of school at Penn, and we've been sort of rocking and rolling ever since. Clay approaches investing from a way opposite point of view than I did. He was investing since, I think, the age of 12 when he bought his first stock. And then I didn't get invested until, I think, the age of 24, post-Goldman, when I finally accrued a little bit of savings. And so Titan, yeah, I had a, yeah, me personally had a pretty significant uh, culture shock trying to figure out how to invest in my own small savings. I faced like I was being, I was being fed with do-it-yourself trading solutions, um, a bunch of different apps that effectively just put you in passive products. But I knew enough to be dangerous that there had to be more than just quote unquote the McDonald's menu of wealth management. And so I grabbed Clay, who was one of my close friends and one of the smartest investors I knew. And I said, what's the scoop with this? And we both just sort of took a look at the space. It was pretty wild that that's the only sort of options consumers have today, because there's a whole world, whether you want to call it investment management, active management, or private wealth management, there's that whole world and ecosystem, and no one's thinking about how to build a bridge for everyday individuals to go get access to the best of breed products over there. And so Titan began. That's um, we 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 set off to go build precisely that a bridge. If you want to give give our listeners just kind of the one minute, um, what what is Titan? What 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 can investors expect if they download your app and, and the App Store, the Google Play Store? Titan is trying to build the best private wealth experience on planet Earth. 
if you think about what the premier investment institutions of the world, let's take Yale Endowment, for example, have access to. Um, Joe mentioned the McDonald's menu. It, it feels quite like a Michelin star restaurant if you were an allocator or an LP in one of these um, uh, large institutional firms. Um, stocks, bonds, even crypto is just the tip of the iceberg. Um, you're talking about asset classes and alternatives like private credit, like real estate, venture capital, private equity, natural resources, um, the list goes on. So working backwards, the mission is to bring our, our generation and frankly, the world to better wealth. We believe one of the, the main ways we can do that is by bringing uh, alternative investments, um, namely the asset classes that historically haven't been available to retail for a handful of reasons, accreditation rules, high minimums, uh, opacity, and frankly, just not worth the juice not being worth the squeeze for large institutions. We're trying to break down those barriers and in doing so, hopefully could do our part uh, in helping narrow the wealth gap uh, a tremendous amount. And frankly, show the supply side, right? The managers of capital that retail can actually be a very viable and sustainable business and, and not just a charity. So our vision really is to to get to make available to the have nots uh, what the haves have had access to for for decades. I think the the last point that you that you hit on there, I think there's a lot of alignment there between Titan and Arc, where you know obviously at Arc our investor base is you know is also made up of a lot of retail investors, and we've seen over the years that you know retail investors are you know super interested, often very much more interested in kind of new technologies, the way the world is changing, and kind of interesting opportunities to get access to that change. And you mentioned um, kind of a few different asset classes that you want to make available to to investors on your platform. And I know you have a background, you've been kind of in traditional finance, you know, for, for a number of years and, and worked at like a hedge fund and, you know, other financial institutions. But if you can kind of double click on that and expand on you know, what's happening with these asset classes, kind of who's investing in them today and, you know, what are kind of the barriers that keep, you know, retail um, investors, be that non-accredited retail investors and, but also accredited retail investors, um, you know, away from these, from these categories. So, yeah, the couple of things that really prevent people from getting access into these categories versus education. So there are very few things in the world more important than investing that you're not taught. One is healthcare. So not everyone is taught to be a doctor. You just go out and get access to a doctor. So great, that's solved. But it's really interesting that money is never taught. And then here, you know, there's this disparity where a lot of folks are then uh, trying to trade their own wealth. So first is education. Second is are just the functional barriers that exist, whether they are the tangible ones like the like let's call it the actual minimum to get in. So if you can't afford a million dollars to go get into a million dollar minimum product, you obviously don't have access. And the second is intangible, which is even if you do have the wealth to go get into something, you might not know the right people, quote unquote, to get access to a specific deal or specific product. And then third, this is sort of less um, cognitive. So if the first two were you know, education and the second one was the bearer century, the third is more of an emotional one, which is there's a lot of folks who just might not see themselves as a person who alternatives is fit for. And it's just sort of part of their psychograph as an investor. And that's a shame because, you know, institutions and the best capital allocators in the world, I think roughly have 40% of their assets in alternatives. So 
ideally you can build a solution, which we're trying to, that hits all three of those things. Hits the education, hits the actual lowering of the functional barriers, but then thirdly, it also helps them see a part of their future wealth. On the other side of this, and Clay, maybe you can answer this. What has been preventing institutional investors from you know reaching out and, and trying to build a build a distribution channel with retail? Why do why do these alternative products, why do these alternative managers have trouble raising capital from retail or or why have they not wanted to raise capital from retail in the past? Beyond what Joe talked about on the on the barriers for retail investors. I would say a couple jump to mind. Joe alluded to the, the tangible constraints right around just minimums <laughs> and frankly, the, the cost benefit analysis, you know, if you whip out a napkin, the quick napkin math is, you know, I'm just going to cherry pick. If you're your tiger global or your Sequoia or your, you know, pick your tier one fund uh, or investment firm. I've heard of these folks anecdotally raising money and, you know, in the, on, on the span of tens or hundreds or if not billions of dollars in a matter of weeks. Right. And so even if you can make a play for, thousands or tens of thousands of retail investors at and somehow figure out how to collect five hundred, a thousand, ten thousand dollar checks. You're talking about significant logistical complexity in terms of collecting the the, the checks, uh, making sure accreditation requirements are met, wiring the funds, handling capital calls, handling handling tax for probably a fraction of the capital. And so traditionally large institutions say, why would I go down the retail route when the institutional route is easier, cheaper, faster? And much less of a headache. So I think the those constraints. If you believe, if you understand the why this hasn't been done before, you can see a lot of those constraints starting to melt away. And we, Titan hopes to be a big proponent and a big uh, pioneer in helping that happen. So um, check size. We're in the year 2022. I don't think adding a few zeros or removing a few zeros should be the reason an entire swath of investors is locked out of a particular asset class. And that's changing if you have a bunch of different uh, under the hood regulatory uh, structures, uh, whether they're registered fund products, SPVs, feeder funds, I won't get into the nitty gritty, but those barriers are falling. And then I would say the second one is one more of Joe alluded to around education, right? I think there's a general bias or stereotype around retail investors, particularly over the last few years with the Reddit, GameStop, kind of Robinhood madness, that retail investors are quite fickle, that they're quote unquote dumb money, or that they're not sticky, that they're just day trading. We see, frankly, the exact opposite on our platform at Titan. We think the right products in front of the right people with the right education layer, really giving them a direct relationship with the fund manager can transform behavior pretty dramatically. And so I think if you look at, if you're an institution today, you have to go through armies of middlemen, each taking a fee and each removing you steps and steps and steps from the end retail investor, where at the end of the day, whether you're Tiger, Andreessen Horowitz, or whomever you are, you know, you're effectively relegated to being a ticker symbol in a portfolio. So of course, they're going to trade a fund manager like a stock. So by removing middlemen, by removing a lot of the barriers I alluded to, we hope we can break that stereotype because for where we, we sit on the field today, retail can be an amazing business. Um, and frankly, I think the world needs uh, uh, to remove these barriers as opposed to just just making wealthy people richer. So. Yeah, maybe you could go a little bit deeper into that when you said kind of removing the middlemen. It seems like that's something that Titan is really um, kind of trying to set out to do, kind of become maybe, you know, a platform for, um, you know, other uh, kind of fund managers, maybe to build a brand and do things like that and directly communicate with their investors. Um, how do you do that? How do you enable that? Kind of direct link. I'll take a simple example and then I'll pass it to Joe. Joe's actually the chief architect of a lot of the, the user experience they see in the app today that's made this relationship come to life. 
let me talk from the institutional investor's perspective, the world that I, I would see if I was going and managing a fund. And then I'll pass it to Joe to sort of articulate like how this looks in the Titan kind of 2.0 world. So if I'm an investment manager today and I want to go to retail, here's the tools that are at my disposal. I have a 90 plus page prospectus, like literally a thick PDF document. Maybe I email it to you. Maybe I mail it to you. I have a fun website where I'm articulating the typical one-year, three-year, five-year track record, a bunch of additional documents and disclosures, and probably a chart that shows my historical track record. And then maybe if I'm super, super innovative, I've taken to platforms like Twitter or YouTube, and I've tried to build a brand and a presence there where I can kind of shout at my audience and hopefully they put two and two together. They see recent investments from my prospectus, they hear me talk on YouTube, and they can feel like they're building a relationship with me. So that's the, that's the 1.0 world if you're an institutional investor with a track record and you want to go to retail. So notice, there's a bunch of different intermediaries, a bunch of platforms, social media and, other, and onwards that remove me from the end investor. And the 2.0 world looks a lot different. I'll pass the mic to Joe to articulate what, what we see there today. Yeah, the 2.0 world's really exciting. It's um, when you, I, I have this working hypothesis that a lot of the great innovation happens in novel consumer verticals, which then get applied to other legacy verticals, whether it's like finance, insurance, healthcare, and so on. And so what you've seen race ahead in consumer technology is the ability for someone to have a one-to-many audience and build relationships one-to-many. So for example, whether you're Serena Williams or LeBron James, you can effectively have a relationship with millions of people at once. And it's amazing that that technology has yet to permeate into wealth management or investment management. And so it's really exciting when you do that is as Clay was chatting earlier, they're really, really great iconic managers, but there are layers and layers of middlemen trying to line up to say, I'm in between you and the end retail investor, and you need me to go get access to this. And what you all have started to showcase and what we're all trying to do as well is how do you actually just build direct-to-consumer relationships with tech that can eliminate all the middlemen? So now you can flip from the old world to the new world where let's say you're a manager and let's say you're managing I know, an equity strategy focused on growth tech. You know, ahead of the you know, firm IPO, you can send a, an Instagram stories like video to entire client base for who's ever in your strategy and effectively say, hey, here's the bull case or the bear case on the stock. Um, And that to us is the future of what the wealth management category will look like. No more will you have your investment management tool over here, and then you're going to turn on the TV over there. And you yourself are going to have to try to bridge the information and say, is what CNBC is telling me today on the TV, does that apply to my little app over here in my wealth? When you actually bridge the manager, the end customer, you can then just get content directly. So it's um, in many ways, we truly are seeking to build a bridge for people who we think should be connected to each other. And one of the most important ways you can do that is just via engagement technology. And Joe, what information do investors care about the most? I'll try to give a generalized answer. A caveat, not all investors are the same. They actually do care about different things and personalization really matters. So... If uh, you know you're weeks away from retirement versus if you're a new investor, two different sorts of things can really drive how you're thinking. Uh, but I can give you certain aspects that we do see today. So volatility. When volatility strikes, people really want to know what's going on and why. And what's nuanced is a lot of people think retail investors have a propensity to trade when volatility hits. 
And there's definitely data that shows that. But in reality, when you look under the hood, most people are just searching for answers. And when provided with answers smartly, they actually then don't start day trading their capital. They operate more like an institution. They say, got it, makes sense. And so one is right now, people are thinking about volatility, all the different macro issues or any um, sort of headlines of the day, they view us as in our platform as a smart friend in their pocket. So ranging from geopolitical tensions to inflation, to what's going on with a monetary policy in the US, they're asking Titan and saying, hey, translate this for me. Which aspects of all this stuff that I'm seeing and hearing matter both for me and for my capital? And so we're trying to do our best job to explain it to them. Maybe we could go back to the, the, the few categories and examples that you mentioned that you want to bring, bring on the platform. You mentioned private credit, real estate, natural resources. There, there are a whole bunch of asset classes, um, kind of sub-asset classes in the, in, in the private markets. Two of those, I think you recently already launched with on the Titan app. So maybe, Clay, I could ask you again if you want to expand on those. I, I think you launched a private credit fund and a real estate fund. So you know, maybe the question, why, why did you start with those? And again, kind of from a practical level, how can investors um, engage with those strategies on your app? We did just launch real estate and private credit, which was super exciting. I think the mental model for us has been, you know, Titan has been a, a growth focused strategy platform historically, right? If you think about our bread and butter with flagship, then moving down the market cap spectrum into small mid cap equities with opportunities and eventually offshore and crypto. As we think about this new market regime, and we do think we could be entering somewhat of a new regime, at least for the next 12 to 18 months around, as Joe mentioned, structural inflation, what that means for risk assets, and then how institutions are positioning. If you sort of connect the dots, you think about asset classes that historically retail investors have under-indexed to, but which may be particularly compelling and provide good risk reward over the next 12 to 18 months. We think private credit and real estate could solve and fill those voids. So private credit, for example, you know, a, a, a lending-focused asset class where the majority uh, of the assets are floating rate, right? i.e. the coupons get reset as infl inflation and, and interest rates rise. That could be a great inflation hedge and is certainly a place where our users are historically under-indexed. Real estate, you know, similar thesis. And so for us, yes, they are private assets as well. And as Joe mentioned, volatility, you know, people are not immune to it. And the fact that these are non-mark-to-market assets uh, certainly do help all equal, we see, um, investor psychology. But it's really around like that blueprint of take Yale endowment, Like how are how are leading institutions and family offices positioned? Where's the retail investor position? And like how does the pie chart differ? How can we help restructure it, reorganize it based on our investors' needs and goals? So yeah, we're excited to to support funds like like Carlisle uh, and Apollo um, live on our platform. These are leading institutional investment firms. Many many folks have heard of. And like I said, they're very mission aligned, right? They see the retail investor playing a bigger bigger role in the capital markets. The barriers are falling. I'm happy to dive into kind of the nitty gritty about how we made this happen. Um, how are we letting retail investors invest with some of the best firms on Wall Street, in our opinion? But super excited and think it's it's just the start. I think let's get into the nitty gritty. <laughs> let's get in there. It would be great if you could expand a little bit on kind of the mechanics. We can't kind of mention our funds here uh, on this podcast for compliance reasons, but just generally, you know, investors out there, retail investors out there. They probably know what you know about ETFs or maybe mutual funds. 
maybe, you know, people have a rough understanding, you know, what's a venture capital fund, roughly 10 years, kind of has a, has a 10 year lifetime, they maybe, you know, have heard have heard of hedge funds, but what kind of structure or kind of what, what are the details associated with these two funds and uh, that, that you just mentioned on, or that you just mentioned and you just launched? That's the word I'm looking for on Titan. These two particular funds are what are called interval funds. They're registered investment companies. So they are 40 act funds registered with the SEC. And it, the, I guess the reason we land on them, if you zoom out, you think about the menu, so to speak, as we were alluding to before, our job at Titan, we look backwards and we say, let's pretend these funds are live. Like, what, what are the elements uh, that have pr- prevented these funds from being live to date? And how can we leverage and, and navigate the regulatory, uh, legal, um, kind of compliance framework and environment to bring these to market in a way that's suitable for investors and also pretty low lift um, for the, the end manager? And if you think about that menu, there's a few different factors involved, right? One is liquidity. Historically, private assets or alternatives broadly have been quite illiquid. If you think about, take an example, whether it's a piece of real estate, it could be a, you know, a, a coal mine, you know, just pick any random alternative asset that's not actively traded day to day. And typically, most retail investors associate investing with buying and selling stocks and ETFs, which are extremely liquid. So the first is how do you take a historically illiquid, you know, relatively infrequent transacting market and make it more retail investor friendly. And one way to do that was take a fund that looks sort of like a mutual fund, which is a thing fund called an interval fund that provides some liquidity, maybe not daily, but doesn't require 10-year lockups for retail investors. That's one element of reducing and breaking down the barrier to getting retail into alternatives. So that was the first thing, is that we found a structure that solved for some of the liquidity needs that we think retail investors have. And then another one was just making sure that it can also provide the level of transparency that we take pride in doing at Titan on our platform and we think retail investors want. So you, you all at ARC are obviously huge fans of bringing your research to the public, you know, being an open box instead of a black box or a closed box. I think traditionally, the world of hedge funds, private equity VC is considered sort of a backroom environment, right? Where it's sort of like, that's through the kitchen to the back. You don't have the wealth to get into that club. And there's not too much disclosure. You're not going to find many deal, much deal flow published on companies' websites. With a registered fund company, uh, you do have some disclosure requirements. And so you can meet the retail investor in the middle if the fund's willing to do that on providing some degree of transparency, but also having some competitive advantage. Because obviously, you know, a venture fund or a private credit fund doesn't want to be necessarily you know, shouting from the rooftops what they're doing every single day. So a long-winded way of saying... These are interval funds, which are registered investment funds. You can buy them exclusively. Some you could be able to buy exclusively through just Titan. Others you can find on, on certain high net worth platforms. But at the end of the day, it's a way of, I'm a retail investor. I can invest with an institutional firm without having to lock my money up for a long period of time. I'd be super curious about the, the response uh, from retail investors. I think you have, you have these funds live for a couple of weeks now. And you know, to your point, they are, you know, not exactly kind of the same experience, maybe that a lot of investors are used to in terms of you know, being able to sell in and out of positions on a daily basis. Um, they also don't have these kind of you know, crazy, very long 10-year lockup periods, but it is something new. So be, be very curious kind of what were the initial reactions? Were you kind of expecting you know, c- certain reactions or how, how was the feedback to this point? Yeah, feedback, but it's super exciting. I think the 
the the overarching theme of these launches and um you know from the from the many investor calls we've done is one of like we hear you know, we're thankful that Titan hears us right if you think about the retail investor today there's sort of two alternatives out there in the world there's buy the dip or run for cover it's like literally two headlines that I'm hearing out in the media today and I think to be able to launch products that we believe as a fiduciary as an RIA we can say, we believe this fills a void, particularly in this market environment. And that void is stable income, which can also act as an inflation hedge. Is like a super resounding theme um, that's really landing with our clients and they're voting with their dollar. So it's super, super exciting to see the early traction. Just to switch topics for a second and, and run down a, a tangent. Um, Joe, how do you see the user experience evolving and the product mix evolving over the next five years? If I were a retail investor coming onto the Titan platform, in 2027, what would my experience look like and how would that be different from the experience today? Unquestioned. Reel me in when it goes too far. So if you think I'm talking 2035, you bring me back down to earth. Um, what we're building is ultimately a place and the user experience is going to reflect that over time. I think every mobile app is fundamentally a place. Like you, you open it up, your mind has just gone to a place and they just choose to render themselves in 2D fashion over the internet in a mobile app. But ultimately, I do think, I don't know if every app is going to track to look more like the metaverse. That's not what I mean. But in reality, what do you think about something that's been lost in the digital age? That was a key part of the user experience in wealth management was the sophistication, the luxury, the feeling of legitimacy of walking in to one of these, you know, historic asset management offices and feeling that trust that you get in person. And I think software, now that they've covered a lot of the low-hanging fruit for how do you onboard a customer, how do you link a bank, how do you get them in certain products, they're going to start software is going to start to tackle more advanced aspects of the user experience, which is how do you replicate that feeling of place of community, in particular in a category like money. So the Titan app five years from now you know, there's a world and I'm riffing, you open it up, you see live footage of various different managers that have their products on the Titan app. And then when you open it up, you will, instead of just scrolling with 2D objects that are structured in rectangles and you click it and they're each the page of a stock, you'll have different spaces. So for instance, for all of Will's crypto whether it's content, products, managers, dialogues, and so on, there'll be a whole crypto world inside the app. If you want to, let's say, if you want to do something with your money or open a new account, you will head to the banking space of our app and it will look and feel very much more like an, in -phys like an in-person physical bank just done over software. And then the second point, so let's say the first point was, ultimately, we're going to be a place. The second piece, to use a retail analogy, is Titan will track to be not just a store with all of the aisles, but a personalized store. It'll be Will's store. And Will's store will look a lot different than Max's store and so on. And the degree of personalization um, is really exciting and is something that's going to track a lot faster given technology is really accelerating wealth at this inflection point. So you're going to be able to do things with Will specifically, whether he likes more of his bespoke human touch, there's certain pieces of content he wants access to. There, you know, let's say, you know, we have a really vibrant community of founders pitching to get venture capital on the Titan platform. And that's something Will cares about. You can be invited to those conversations and dialogues. Um, so Titan five, five years from now is a really exciting thing. So we're trying to see if we can even pull that time horizon forward. 
Thank you, Joe. This outlook, I think, I think, I think it resonates with a lot of investors out there. I can see the merge between between the physical and the digital. Um, I think that's a, that's an interesting analogy, kind of bringing the same um, le- level of trust that that you might feel in in the physical world um, into the digital world. So, kind of maybe going from a, a um, an outlook in, into the future, maybe a little bit more to a kind of um, retro perspective view. I'd be also super curious. You know, if that always was the mission, or if there were kind of big surprises over the past few years in, in building Titan, where you maybe had kind of an aha moment and, and thought, wow, this was something that I really didn't expect that changed my mind. Maybe you guys were on this mission right from the start <laughs> and, and had all the, the big, great ideas. But oftentimes in um, kind of an intro, in, in an entrepreneurial journey, you maybe have an aha, an aha moment or kind of this kind of revelation type moment. So I'd be super curious to hear about kind of your entrepreneurial story and kind of if there were any big events over the past couple of years that really shape how you think about things today. This is almost like a do as I say, not as I do moment. You know, Silicon Valley ethos is ship something, iterate, pivot, and keep going and move quickly. And then you sort of find the thing. And that's like classic textbook Silicon Valley theory. With us, it was our story, just to be very authentic, the exact op- opposite. This started in my kitchen. We sort of had a, the same exact vision since day one. And even when we were rejected a lot early on, given the idea was contrarian at the time, we were stubborn enough to keep going. But what did to your question on how has our uh, vision changed over, over time? Um, one of the analogies I'd use is sort of like climbing. Like the more you climb, the clearer the view gets and as you get higher and higher up. So we knew back in my kitchen that we wanted to go, you know, like northeast. That's our direction. That's our mission. That's our compass. We're just going to head northeast. We're going to trailblaze through everything in our way. But now that we've worked on the category a lot, we've talked to a lot of customers, we've, we've experimented with different product vehicles, it's a lot clearer what the end destination looks like regardless of which direction you're going in. And so I would have never been able to articulate how clearly you know, the bifurcation between wealth managers and asset managers and what wealth 3.0 means on day one. But I think our emotionally, our intuition was right. But now we have a much deeper sense of cerebral resolve around what we're building and you know, in a weird paradoxical way, you always think like you start with a lot of hopes and dreams and then reality set in and you downgrade your hopes and dreams a little bit. Ours is the opposite. You know, we started with hopes and dreams and every time we work and we peel back another layer, we start to realize that it's much bigger than we thought. So it's really, really exciting. Like the more we work on this, the more we realize how much we could do. And it just keeps getting more and more expansive. I'll ask you a question for both of you along these same lines, and we'll start with Clay, and then Joe, you can you can chime in as well. What's the number one lesson you've learned in, in building this into a, a reasonably large company? If you were to go back to, to day one when you were founding this, what advice? What's the single piece of advice you would have given yourself? <laughs> There's two that jump to mind. Maybe Joe's going to answer, give you the other one. Reduce the cost of being wrong as opposed to trying to increase the probability of being right. It's been the most helpful advice as an entrepreneur. Nine times out of 10, our intuition, I wouldn't say nine times out of 10, the majority of the time, 
we uncover very unintuitive insights when we just talk to users, when we just talk to customers, talk to investors. You know, the, the halls of the Ivy League, you know, set of schools are littered with great startup ideas that, that never were built because they probably overthought them. They didn't talk to users. The way to build a big business is not to sit in a room thinking of great startup ideas, um, nor is it to spend, you know, every ounce of effort getting something absolutely perfect. It's in shipping quickly, iterating, getting a V1 out. Um, and like I said, reduce the cost of being wrong by investing the minimal amount of effort up front to get a high fidelity, statistically significant answer, and then iterating from there. That's how we run the business today. That's how we run our teams, our squads. That's how we think about the world. Um, and while we have this big vision and mission, I like to say we're, we're mission and vision optimistic and strategy realistic, which is that the world's going to change. We're living it right now with this, this what we believe is a huge recession. Um, so we reduce the cost of being wrong. That's great. And Joe? What came to mind for me was a courage to hold contrarian perspectives. We started this business when passive was the hottest thing in the world. People were then discussing as like all of wealth going to flow into just a passive index. Now, obviously, anyone who had studied capital markets know capital markets would break if that would occur. But you know, the Titan wasn't received well at the start. People sort of shoo-shooed us out of the room. Um, so it was a deeply contrarian perspective. And now, you know, many different things have scaled in, in the active side of the world that makes this category now consensus. But at least something that just came top of mind when you asked the question, which is how important it is to have courage to be contrarian or look for nuanced insights, because then behind those things are huge businesses. Like who would have ever thought sleeping on strangers' couches would be a major business called Airbnb, and you can just go down the line. So yeah, I think it's a critical piece of DNA to the Titan story. On the founding journey, you guys have raised capital from some of the best venture firms out there. And you, know, you certainly had, uh, had your, your choice of the pack. What did you look for in, uh, in looking for an ideal venture partner? to really provide capital and be alongside as you build this business? Two that jump to mind that are very uh, kind of, you know, when you see it and the third that is much, much harder to glean and is really only earned uh, um, over time. Uh, the first is fighter DNA. There's no shortage of tier one logos, people that have been up and down Wall Street, Sand Hill Road and all these podcasts. Joe alluded to, to, to contrarian beliefs, we, we like people that are contrarian thinkers. So like, for example, uh, I think the majority of the investors that we've accepted on our board to date were the people that were pinging us uh, before it was consensus, before active management was quote unquote cool. The people that have followed our journey from the start and had really, really deep, unique insights about our business or about how we think about content, how we think about the user experience, far beyond what I had heard or read about on any blog, any podcast, just very cerebral thinking and a sense of being on our side. So the first I would say is Friday DNA. I'd say the second is operators. It's one thing to talk the talk, but like we, we've lived through what we call wartime, which is like the inevitable chewing glass phase of being an entrepreneur numerous times, whether it was having thousands of dollars left in the bank and almost dying, whether it was having to deal with multiple massive market corrections along our journey. And so just folks that have been in the seat, like whole you know, Roosevelt quote about being in the ring is just invaluable. So you'll notice historically, we tend to position ourselves with folks that have been there, done that as operators um, and founders themselves. And then the third thing I would say is uh, a sense of, you know, it's whatever, five o'clock here, Eastern time. There's only a few people in the world that I know would pick up if Joe and I called them at 1 a.m. tonight. 
And I like to think that the majority of those people are actually on our cap table. There's something about the ability to roll up your sleeves and answer when the call is most needed. Everyone says they do that, say they're family friendly. But again, it's, you really only know that from experience and occasionally from back channeling and referrals. It's no joke when they say like choosing a board, choosing your cap table, it is a marriage <laughs> and we hope to never go through any divorce. So like I, I can say we have a very happy marriage with all of our board and our investors, um, but it was very, very deliberate and curated. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it kind of ties into another question um, we wanted to ask here. I don't know if, if, if Clay, if you want to jump on that too. You've kind of laid out the thesis for the next five, or I think, Joe, you mentioned 2035, so, so a lot more years. What are the biggest challenges that you're facing and kind of what are you doing to, to, uh, to mitigate them or um, put yourself in, kind of the, in, in a succeeding position? I don't know if, Joe, you can take it as well. Yeah, uh, biggest challenges going forward. So probably the first, uh, there's that quote, strategy, you know, ideas are cheap, execution is everything. We're at the phase in our journey where we're over 100 people. We have a robust balance sheet um, in a recession, which is obviously a very advantageous and fortuitous position to be in. But we could have strategy decks all day long at Titan. That doesn't really matter. Do you have the team that can execute more ambitiously and more quickly than your competitors? So that's point one. Is just Can you maximize a lot of those inputs? Hugely important. Never should be a given. Um, probably the biggest thing I think about all the time is just obsessing over the team we're building and how we play together. Probably the second thing would just be the market opportunity we're in is both large. It probably will end up oligopolistic. There will be several winners, but there still will only be a finite amount of seats at the table. And do we get distribution before a number of the old incumbents get innovation? And, you know, they're looking to maintain their seats and not lose it. And the titans of the world are staking their claim that we will have a seat either next to you or we will take your seat at the table. And so are we scaling at the fast enough rate to be able to go do that and building a business with a real technology-driven moat that can be multi-generational? So those are probably just sort of like the two things that I really think about all the time, the team, and then Titan's ability to go scale and earn our place at the table. Great. Joe, Clay, thank you so much. Um, I think we had a super interesting conversation, kind of going into the nitty-gritty details of, of the private markets and some interesting products that you're working on, as well as you know, all, all your kind of entrepreneurial background and, and the journey you've been on. So. You know, we'll see. Uh, I don't know, William, if, if you have kind of uh, ending thoughts here as well. Um, but thank you so much, Sean Craig. Yeah, I appreciate you guys joining. And I think uh, we, have, we have very much aligned missions when it comes to democratizing access um, to, to retail. And, uh, and I think we're, uh, we're all rowing in the same direction. So thank you guys for joining. Thanks for having us. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results.
Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.